0: So let me pray for you, Mark. Father, we thank you for Mark, for his servant heart. In preparing for this message for all of us, uh, I ask that you would um, give him all the words to say, speak through him, and give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. In your name, amen. Amen.
1: Thank you very much you know I've always felt that uh, our worship experience here at FCBC is in many ways grounded the culture of our church and I just I really appreciate that I appreciate Matt's role in that uh, Matt and Sue have both really been cornerstones and uh it is sobering to see some of the changes that are are transpiring, but uh, nevertheless, we move forward in, in hope and faith. Yeah. So So, um, some of you who are familiar with my background are aware that. I'm originally from Oklahoma, and uh, we actually moved out of the state quite early in my life. My dad worked for Southwestern Bell Telephone Company. So we were actually transferred around quite a lot uh, through the, the central Midwest, and I actually spent most of my childhood in Kansas. But the rest of our extended family, actually on both sides of the family, Remain down in Oklahoma, we were really the only branch that that ultimately moved out of the state and in many respects i I still consider Oklahoma my home. I still do have aunts and uncles and cousins that are down there and it's it's always um, it's a healthy thing for me to go back down there to reengage uh, in a sense, I feel almost more human when i when i 'm able to to do that, but um, when I was about five or six, we had already moved out of the state of of Oklahoma at that time. we were living in Dodge City, Kansas, and of course, we still made frequent visits down to uh, Oklahoma City, most of the relatives on both sides of the family were just located right there in the greater Oklahoma City area. And so I would have been, yes, I would have been around five or six, and uh, probably about this time of year, actually, maybe a little bit deeper in the season, we took one of our usual trips down to Oklahoma to reconnect with family, and on this particular occasion my dad had a work associate that also had Oklahoma City connections, and it happened to be that she was going to take a ride with us uh down there and uh, so we um, we packed up and loaded up I believe it would have been at that time our white Pontiac and uh Got on I-35 and made a beeline down to, to Oklahoma City. So mom and dad were in the front car. Uh, this, uh, my dad's associate, this, th- this woman, myself and my sister Becky were in the back seat. Somehow I want to say, you got to keep in mind these are the memories of a five or six-year-old kid. Um, I want to remember this woman as being somewhat older. Older than, older than my parents. So, of course, um, I'm very excited and energized about the prospect of, of going down there. And through the course of the trip down, I must have been more or less just kind of bouncing around the interior of, uh, of the car, interjecting, not really paying attention to others' conversations, and. I suppose thinking back in retrospect, I think the issue at stake was that I was just simply oblivious to this other woman's presence in the car. So about a week later perhaps, after returning from the trip, dad comes home and he presents me with a mark, you know, I've got something for you here, got a little got a little present for you. And uh, so it was, it was a thin, hardback, little book. As I remember, kind of an aquamarine color. And it was entitled, Manners Can Be Fun. We
2: had
1: that one. <laughs> yeah, is that right? And as, as I recall, it, it's probably, I, I kind of, before uh, in the process of preparing for this, I thought about, well, maybe that's, that's packed away somewhere. So it, it might have been an interesting show and tell, but uh, as I recall, it, you open the book and it's accompanied by uh, uh, just black and white illustrations, stick figures, of uh, you know these little people that are in various scenarios, and then it gives you uh, you know sort of the, describes sort of the condition of the of the particular scenario, and then suggests the appropriate response, you know, what, you know, what should be said. Well, um, you know, I, I don't remember mom and dad bringing down a lot of sanctions in that case. I mean, after all, I was only, I was only five or six. But I do remember feeling badly ab- about myself and even at that age, it was obvious that I had been corrected in some sense. You know, I don't remember Dad really setting me down and, and putting this in some kind of context. And Dad could be a formidable figure. He was one of these guys, he shoots you a glance, and you kind of know what to do. Um, but there, in this case, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of parental sanction. Nevertheless... I realized that, you know, I had behaved badly and I was experiencing a, a sense of shame. And so it, it's just the, the problematic nature of of being corrected. It typically, you know, this is not well received. Uh, it's a threat to our personal security any time that, that we are corrected. Um, and so in, in thinking about this, and I suppose I'm thinking about it primarily in negative terms in this case, uh, it seems to me that there are two basic reactions to, you know, to being corrected. There's this self-recrimination, you know, this, the, the, this sense of guilt and shame. Or there is the reverse of that. There, there is, you can assume this accusatory stance. It's the other person that's at fault. So, you know, what kinds of things might we be saying about ourselves when we experience correction? What would that internal narrative be telling us at the point at which we are being corrected? What kinds of things, perhaps, are we saying to ourselves? Anyone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I you know, I'm a bad person. There must be something wrong with me. Yeah, I'm I I'm guilty. I've 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 done something. something has transpired and I'm responsible for it. Ah, that's that's yeah, that's that's a good one. That goes a little bit that goes a little bit deeper. Yeah, I must not be very perceptive. Or otherwise, I wouldn't be corrected here. Well, and that that would be more positive, right? Yeah. So what what can I do to make myself better? I I think initially the response, at least speaking for myself, it tends to be more negative. I must be rather insensitive since I'm being told that i hurt somebody's feelings. I'm not good enough since uh, I'm being told that I need to develop this particular skill. Sometimes it feels like we're attacked and we have to defend ourselves, and that makes for a good transition because the other reaction is basically the reverse. Instead of telling myself that I'm at fault, I go into an accusatory mode. And so what might that look like as, I, as I'm being defensive? What am I at least thinking to myself about this other person? Yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. This person who's trying to correct me, yeah, I yeah, just doesn't know what they're talking about. They're out to get me. This person is on a power trip, so he has a need to correct me. There must be something wrong with this person because they're projecting their insecurities on me. One other uh, response that comes to my mind is, is, uh, you know, so-and-so just doesn't understand my life situation. He just doesn't understand the context of my life, so he's speaking to me on the basis of false assumptions. So I, I think we would all agree that neither one of these, these reactions, being self-recriminatory or being accusatory, is particularly healthy. The first involves that there's a feeling that there's something wrong with me. I'm culpable. It's my fault. And then the second, of course, it's just the reverse of that. It's the other person's fault. They just don't see things uh, correctly. Uh, So if these two basic reactions become our default mode, we're not going to be in a position to allow others to speak into our lives. Uh, We will feel shamed in the sense of what our study calls toxic shame. I am bad and irredeemable. That's the way that our study kind of wants to characterize that. I'm bad and irredeemable. So shame equals bad. And then, of course, the other response to that is to try to shame the other person. Uh, You are bad and irredeemable. And I think that we have to admit that our culture is not particularly helpful in advancing Uh, at least what our study calls a healthy uh, sense of correction or a healthy sense of shame. We'll come back to that. Uh, One observation I think that we can make and that we'll all agree with is that we do have a rights-based culture. We have a rights-based culture, not so much a responsibility-based culture. And I have a right to want what I want and I have a right to get what I want. There is also this presumption of right to privacy that comes into play. Um, If I and others regard my private life as this sort of holy ground that can't be violated, then I'm not going to be in a position to receive correction, and you're probably not going to be in a position to, to give it. It's that private interior space, the boundaries of which shouldn't be violated. That's sort of the presumption of our culture. And so these sorts of observations, I think, betray uh, the modern belief that what is most fundamental is the individual particular self. What is most fundamental is the individual particular self, not relationship I am my own my personal feelings and the way that I interpret my experience of the world and others shouldn't really be challenged now the extent to which the church has at least implicitly embraced those assumptions largely accounts for what our study calls the ethic of being nice you know we we should be nice to everyone uh, after all, the church is supposed to be a place that is affirming. It's supposed to be a cheerful place. It's supposed to be inviting. And so far be it from us to hurt anybody's feelings. And, of course, this is also a culturally layered in various ways. I know that um, uh, it's been some time ago now, previous teaching that, that Emily gave, introduced us to this notion of Midwest nice. Do you, do you remember that? You know, Midwest nice, you know. And this is the, the you know, this uh, a kind of folksy affability that um, there's a warm tone to it, but ultimately, it's superficial because it doesn't really represent a genuine attempt to engage. And so the the problem with this ethic of being nice is that that ultimately it's a denial of reality. Healthy correction of course acknowledges the reality of dysfunction. Now one reason that uh, the culture of the church doesn't want to emphasize transformational correction is that we reject all shame as bad Um, and this is because again we associate shame with with being toxic and also of course we tend to be conflict avoiders Uh, you know it's it's easy uh, for our communities it's easy for our church community to slide into this avoidance as more or less our our default position so on the other hand uh, our study suggests that there is a good kind of shame. Now, we got into this last week, as, as you recall, if you were here. Uh, last teaching, very nice teaching, very thoughtful teaching from uh, Shauna Azell. And uh, so we were questioning this, this notion of shame, particularly this notion of healthy shame. Is, is there such a thing as healthy shame? As I recall from last week, uh, I really enjoyed that discussion, and one thing that I appreciated about this study is that we've, I think as a group, we've maintained our, our critical sensibilities to some extent in going through this. That's, hopefully that's a sign of maturity. Um, but there wasn't, as I recall, a lot said about what the study actually said about healthy shame. So here is, here's a quote from uh, our particular, sec- uh, our particular uh, section of the study that, that's before us today. I think this is pretty much a, 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 a quote here. Healthy shame is a nonverbal, spontaneous reaction to a face that is not happy with me. Um, uh, once again. Uh, Healthy shame is a nonverbal, spontaneous reaction to a face that is not happy with me. Now, I have to say that when I read that, uh, it struck me as being pretty compelling, vivid, and uh, helpful. Uh, The reaction to a face is, is... What's at view here? And that's that's very important in human relationships. I, I just mentioned earlier that dad was a formidable figure. He could he could flash that glance at you and you would know to you know to behave. And a lot of the dynamics of personal interaction occur in in those terms. Um so uh, so do we go with this? Do we go with this? definition it, it's a um, it's a recognition that I have caused somebody's face to frown at me I've caused you to be unhappy that's expressed in the in, in the face now the study characterizes this as healthy shame when I read the quote it it struck me and I found it more helpful perhaps, and we're doing a little bit of tweaking here. I found it more helpful just to consider that definition as a characterization of shame in general. That's just that's just what shame is. Uh, the spontaneous reaction to a face that is unhappy with me. And whether that is toxic or whether that is healthy will depend, of course, on the relational context in which that occurs. So, does that make sense? Is 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 is, is that helpful? Yeah. So, it it just seems to me that Wilder the uh, uh has has hit upon a general definition of what shame is. The this this making a face unhappy and then the question is whether that is going to be help, ultimately helpful or whether that's going to be ultimately toxic is going to fall back then upon the relational context, and that's that, that's that's a little bit more helpful to me. Um, so uh, the observation uh, is 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 made that shame is the opposite of joy. Shame is the opposite of, opposite of joy. I immediately know from your face. That I have lowered your joy level, as as as, as it's put, and so uh, there's a relational component to this, of course, that that is immediately at play. Um, I've also somehow lowered the joy of the community when this happens. So shame in this sense will incline us to isolate and hide once we realize that this has transpired. And last week, uh, I thought that Shauna very helpfully related this to our primordial parents. She went back to the opening chapters of, of the book of Genesis. After partaking of the fruit... Adam and Eve tried to hide from God and in doing so they were also trying to hide from each other in their attempt to cover themselves they were ashamed there really is in the opening chapters of Genesis an embedded wisdom that is almost superhuman Uh, we could spend a lot of time thinking and meditating about those opening chapters. So I I, I take it when when Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, part of what that means is they were engaged in genuine self-disclosure. When they experienced shame and then attempted to cover themselves, they were no longer engaging in self-disclosure between themselves and between themselves and God. They fell out of relationship between themselves. They fell out of relationship with God. And that's the essence of the fall. In that sense, I think that we have to take our fallenness seriously when we realize that there is a shadow that's come between us and the face of each other and the face of God. So in becoming separate from God they became separate from each other. And in becoming separate from each other, they became self-conscious. And in becoming self-conscious, they ultimately became lovers of themselves. They became self-involved. And it's that narcissism that resists the directive voice Of another in my life, in our lives. And it's only healthy attachment and group identity that helps us recover that hearing, that helps us recover that divine image. So our study characterizes shame as something that is immediate and spontaneous. If that's so, then it stands to reason that the experience of affirmation and acceptance is also going to be immediate and spontaneous, right? So we think of the the great Hebrew benediction, May his face shine upon you. May his face shine upon you. That is immediate. That is immediately perceived. So proper correction then will have the effect of ushering us back in to that divine gaze it will have the effect of ushering us back in to that pleased face which by the way was always there with respect to god god god's loving gaze doesn't doesn't change scripture teaches us that the shape of god's expression in relationship to us is steady in him there is no darkness or shadow of turning So healthy correction will have the effect of cleansing the lens, as it were, that allows us to see uh, God's face. Uh, Shame and acceptance, then, are primal experiences, if you will. And scripture many times uh, characterizes this as the appearance or the disappearance of a face that is radiant. And we see that all through scripture. Um, Moses' face shined as he was coming down from the mount. Jesus' face shone like the blazing sun on the mount of transfiguration. Paul, before Agrippa, talks about a light brighter than the noonday sun appearing to him when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. In Revelation, the one who is sitting on the throne is shining like a gemstone. So scripture is attesting to light as transformative. We see that all through scripture. Light is something that is transformative. And typically that light is characterized as having its source in a loving face. So it's like walking in the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So maybe we can then just just tweak this definition of healthy shame. Healthy shame is that spontaneous reaction to a shadow that I have somehow cast between myself and the loving, radiant face of God or others. Healthy shame is the spontaneous reaction I'm suggesting to a shadow that I've cast between myself and the loving gaze of another. And I I, I found that helpful. Now, our study likens community to good soil. The soil, if we've been reading along here, the soil should be fertilized with joy. And then, of course, this notion of hesed, this, this robust attachment to another. Group identity, a healthy sense of group identity. We are members of the body of Christ. And also correction. Now, it's pointed out that if we have those first three, if we have the, those first three, joy, hesed, group identity, there's going to be a lot of good things that grow, right? I mean, that, that that soil is going to be pretty healthy. But inevitably, over time, without correction, there is going to be some deformed fruit that, that comes down. And so at this point, of course, we need... We need that element of correction in our body life. Um, So someone would approach me and say, Mark, you didn't really act out of your best self in this situation. So this gets us a little bit closer to what that healthy correction would actually look like mark you didn't act from your best self in this situation where you had a conflict with Lori. and so mark I want you I I want to invite you to consider what you know we as a church would have done in that situation so so healthy correction there is an affirmative component to that. Mark, you didn't act out of your best self. So my worth is being acknowledged. And yet there is a certain specificity, of course, in, in, in this. You didn't act out of your best self in the way that you reacted to Lori in, in, in this situation. And that, of course, is, is, is needed. This kind of dynamic is, is needed for the sake of relational health. Human beings don't automatically unfold into the perfect bloom of the divine image. That's, that, that's just not going to happen. Uh, uh, the realization of the divine image in our lives will take place, of course, in the context of relationship. We, that's, the realization of the divine image in our lives will always take place in the context of relationship because why? Why, why is that? Ultimately it's because God in his very essence is relational. God himself is is triune. So it, it's it's not just that having relationships, cultivating relationships is is healthy, it's nice, it's something that we should do, but rather healthy relationships it's a necessity. Having a healthy relationship with others is an absolute necessity because it's a reflection upon the essence of God himself. It's a reflection of his necessary character. So so healthy correction will be a necessary part of, of character transformation. So from this perspective, then, correction is much more than just... Addressing particular problems as they happen to come up, right? Um, healthy correction is much more than just providing a fix, just getting something fixed. Persons are not mechanisms that need fixing. Persons bear that fractured image that need restoration to wholeness. So persons are not mechanisms that require fixing. Persons bear that fractured image that requires restoration to wholeness. You know, after all, when a mechanism or device is fixed, it returns to its default position, right? That's to say it remains essentially unchanged. Um, But healthy correction creates a space where mutual transformation is possible by hearing and responding to the voice of the other. Both corrector and correctee benefit. And of course, each can switch positions, right? Uh, The one who happens to be doing the correcting at the moment needs to realize that the one who he is correcting might ultimately correct him so correction and i think this is this is right as our study presents it correction is something that is mutual and i think primarily horizontal in a healthy church irons sharpen, iron sharpens iron sharpens iron so correction is not just vertical. It's not just hierarchical. Perhaps it's not even primarily that. It's, it's, I think it's more horizontal. It's mutual. It's not a matter of being top-down, if you will. So this, this openness to heeding the voice of the other is important because if I can't receive your voice then how am I going to receive the voice of of God? We are, after all, embodied bearers of the divine image. We are earthen vessels which enjoy the presence of God. If I can't receive your voice, then how am I going to receive God's voice? Because typically I'm going to hear God's voice as he is present in you. I mean, I, 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 just reflecting on my own experience, um, I don't think I've ever had the occasion to hear God's voice as this disembodied directive, an audible voice that just kind of appears out of nowhere. I mean, it would be nice and I, and I don't know, maybe, maybe there have been experiences in your life where you've experienced something like that. All I can say is that for me, it's not, it's not typical. When I am, am looking for divine directive, I have to be willing to receive uh, the sound of your voice in my interior space. And of course, pressing into that is going to be messy and, and painful. We know from Hebrews 12.6 that the Lord corrects the people he loves and disciplines those he calls his own. Say that again. The Lord corrects the people he loves and disciplines the ones that he calls his own. The ones that he calls his own that is an expression of intimacy. The ones that he calls his own. So it's an acknowledgement that intimacy will involve what is unpleasant. And of course, uh, whether we're talking about marriage, whether we're talking about uh, relationships between parents and children, whether we're talking about friendships, any kind of genuine relationship is going to be painful. That is, it's going to involve suffering. Relationship is going to involve suffering. And it's that avoidance of suffering that leads to superficial relationships. It largely accounts for our resistance to receiving correction. I think I, I think this this is a problem perhaps in the culture of conservative Protestantism, this, this whole notion of being willing to press through suffering. We tend to operate under this assumption that if I'm walking in the center of God's will, there is a certain sort of immunity that's, that's granted And the older that I've gotten, uh, it's clear to me that 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 assumption is is false.
2: Uh,
1: Paul in Philippians speaks of having the fellowship of his suffering, and that's that's a somewhat cryptic and and mysterious turn of phrase. What what does that actually mean? Uh, the fellowship of his suffering, perhaps pain given and pain received in love? There's a lot that we could say about that. It was painful for the Lord uh, to suffer on our behalf, and it's going to be painful for us to suffer on the behalf of others as, as we follow Christ. But nevertheless, that is the kind of relationship that we're called into, bearing one another's burdens. So any challenge to someone's thought and behavior is going to be painful for the one who is both posing the challenge and the one who is receiving that challenge. But if we have, if we're operating out of this said, this robust loving attachment, if that prevails, then the pain that we associate with being correcting, with being corrected, will be affirming. It will be transformative. So so correction received in a context of trust. If I trust you and I'm receiving that correction, I'm going to be able to receive that correction in in a healthy way. And it's far more likely that I'm going to be changed by it. So this is very important because obviously otherwise, if that trust has not been established, if that love is not there, if that attachment is not there, then being corrected is just going to be interpreted as a form of rejection, essentially. When we are rejected, we're driven back into ourselves and our tendency to narcissism deepens. And we can easily see that this leads to a kind of self-reinforcing negative cycle. Um, The more that I return to self the less likely that I'm able to hear your voice. And that just continues to deepen. And even more fundamentally, I'm going to be resistant to any kind of beneficial change in my life. So the default reaction is going to be to settle into my life, essentially. I'm just going to settle into the privacy of myself. The private self reigns. It rears its head. And that's very characteristic of modernity, that the private self reigns supreme, it's a place that I can go for a retreat, and that private space is not to be violated. So it's that fear of rejection, I think, that largely drives a lack of correction in our church culture. This is what our study is suggesting, and I think that that's right. When this becomes a part of our body life, then the church becomes stagnant if if this kind of dynamic is not present. There is a lack of discipleship. There's a lack of genuine discipleship. And the church then shifts its focus from relationship onto making sure that the church as an institution survives and succeeds, right? Whatever success means in this, you know, in this context. Having more people, presenting more programs, presenting more programs to people who are consumer motivated. So the church becomes, is in danger of becoming a kind of commercial enterprise, essentially, when we don't allow others to speak into our lives we don't have, we have not developed that kind of, of culture the church becomes a less compelling place to be because at that point it's 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 superficial we have a superficial dynamic relational dynamic that's going on so has said this notion of robust attachment correction hopefully when that's at play that will present that will pre- prevent us from falling into this kind of narcissism and otherwise, we won't experience transformation. <clears throat> we, uh, many times, particularly as conservative evangelicals, we talk a lot about having a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, how are you doing in your personal relationship with, with Jesus? Uh, and that's become something of a, of a trope. Uh, I find, if I'm not careful, when I think of developing my personal relationship with Jesus, this becomes, at least for me, very easily a kind of projected narcissism, if you will. Um, We speak of building our personal relationship with Christ as if this were some kind of solo act. And since I am, honestly, uh, uh, you know, the kind of person that inclines to my solitude, I am tempted to think of my relationship with Jesus in this way. It's Jesus and me against the backdrop of the rest of the world. You know, it's, Jesus, it's just Jesus and me. We're on this journey, and we're going to conquer the world uh, together. And it, it has an almost heroic ring about it you know but invariably when I find myself thinking in that kind of way trying to relate to Jesus in that way then it ultimately winds up being a form of self-advancement on on my part Uh, and this can manifest itself in very subtle ways It may be disguised as something very good. Um, Character development. Of course, we want to develop our character. Becoming a better person. I want to become a better person. And here we see the subtlety of this self-interest that comes into play. The question is, I should want to advance my character. I should want to be a better person. But for the sake of whom? For the sake of whom? For the sake of myself? So ideally, I should want to be a better person, but I should want to be a better person because this allows me to better relate to other persons. So it's not about just being a better person that has the effect of others admiring me for who I am in and of myself. As if I were this properly proportioned statue that other people admire. See, at that point, I'm entertaining an ideal of myself that ultimately becomes an idol. And that's why we need the directive voices of others in our lives. There will always be a necessary relational dimension to to character development. Um, Building a better relationship with Jesus is about allowing him to draw me into his own life and in doing so, he will draw me more deeply into the lives of the others in whom he is present. And that, I think, primarily is the way that we encounter Jesus. We encounter him as present in one another. And without a community in which that kind of suggestion, heeding the voice of the other is present, then our relationship with Jesus and with with each other really does become an exercise in narcissism, I think. Our relationships become shallow. Jesus, in effect, becomes the prime contractor... In a construction project that's designed to give me a self that I want. To cut to the chase, Jesus becomes a means to my end. So, what I mean, it, it, it's nice to think of, of Jesus as my best buddy. You know, we, we, we sometimes, you know, Jesus is my best buddy, uh, we're best friends. He's my numero uno. Um, I think these kinds of expressions can sometimes be a bit too chummy for our own good. Uh, Jesus would certainly be willing and eager to sit down and have a beer with us. And and particularly up here in in the brew state of, of Wisconsin, particularly here in Madison, we're... We do the brew as few do. Uh, (laughs) But he also asks us to follow him. And so I I think that there would be something strangely compelling about having a beer with Jesus. I, I think that we would want to stay and see how that moment is going to unfold. There would be an elation, there would be something compelling about that, but there would be a seriousness to it too. I I think we we would really want to see how that is going to unfold. It would be more than just mere entertainment. And I think sometimes we're inclined to think of relationships as entertainment. We just go out with somebody and have a good time. So I think a context in which accountability is present, it's, that's going to lay the foundation for taking our relationship seriously and certainly taking our discipleship with Christ seriously. And it's certainly going to prevent us from thinking about our discipleship as a mechanism of success. When we allow others to speak into our lives in a directive way, we have a foundation for growing together. We grow together. And that's the only way that we can grow, ultimately. We have to grow together because personal growth is essentially relationally driven. So I think when when this is happening, as it should, there develops within the body of Christ a kind of convergence of purpose and a depth of conviction in which we can recover that divine image in ourselves, as we recover that divine image and we see that divine image displayed in one another. We recover the divine image as we recover our relationships with one another in whom that image is present. And then we go on then to project that image uh, among ourselves in the body, and then hopefully into uh, the community at large. And I hope that, um, you know, as we go forward as a church, we can do that. And there will be a way in which we can we can we can meaningfully do that, despite the uncertainties that lay before us as a as a body. Um, The recovery of that image drives us and still offers hope to us as as we go forward in this rather uncertain season, I think, which we find challenging, Um, not only as a body, but I think many of us just as individuals, we're getting older, and it's it's sobering to see the, the changes that have transpired. So, thank you. I, would somebody want to pray for us? Um, uh, Eric, you are a powerful prayer and intercessor. I know you've been doing some intercession uh, this last week, and maybe you could close us out. Oh, I, I, I'm, sorry. No, I'm sorry. Oh, sure. Sure, I, d- I didn't, yeah. Yeah, we've, we've kind of gone interactive here.
0: Yeah. Um, a few people, at least one person, would like to respond, and maybe a, a few people just have a few a thoughts, something that came to mind. So I'll just thank you, Mark. Sure. Thank you for food for thought and self-examination. Self-examination,
1: so. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, you okay? I'm addressing myself when I, you know, I th- <laughs> primarily I'm addressing myself. Well, thank you. Diana has something.
2: Mark, I love it when you teach. No, thanks. You just open up my mind as well as my heart. Thank you. So, on the subject of iron sharpening iron, when you brought that up. That little voice, usually my right shoulder, kind of right behind me, kind of whispering in the right ear, and diamond polishes diamond. Yeah. And what opened up for me, and I think it's for all of us, um, I think the whole thing that's happening with our church is sort of a diamond in the rough being polished process. Hmm. When we look... I agree totally that we hear Jesus through one another, that we guide one another, that we entertain one another, um, that we comfort one another as Christ would comfort us through one another. However, in scripture, there are also those times where a person has a personal interaction with God, and it usually involves falling backward and landing flat on their face or their butt. Um, and so I'm thinking of uh, Jacob wrestling. Hmm. I'm thinking of Moses receiving the word. I'm thinking of um, Paul, of course, Yeah. on the road. I'm also thinking, as a woman, I'm thinking of the woman up the well. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Thanks, Diane. I- no, I mean, I don't think I mean I, I appreciate that Chuck and you know, falling on your butt, Chuck. you know uh, the, the, the church needs to provide a space in which we can fall on our butts without experiencing shame. So and shunning. yeah
2: yeah.
0: Okay, thank you. Yeah, a lot of food for thought. Okay, I will pray. uh lord we um we don't want to take these words lightly Uh, we want to be people that love one another into correction not with a stern look or um, in an we want to correct in a healthy way Uh, we want to love one another so that we become more like you and i I just wonder, what what do you look like when you are kind of like Mark's dad (laughs) looking at somebody um, wanting them to be corrected? I know it's full of love, and I know it's on the receiver's part. Um, We want to change. We see that look of love, and we just want to change because of it. So I pray that for each of us. Um, Thank you.